It's time for Knox Talk, a behind-the-scenes look at the business side of college sports. Featuring Paul Sickman from Knox Sports and Brandon Parks from the Vol Network. Now for today's show. Welcome to another edition of Knox Talk. My name is indeed Paul Sickman, and it is the ninth day of March. And we are joined again by my good friend Brandon Parks and also Alicia Longworth, where we continue our two-part series talking to Alicia about all things external and how the university integrates with the multimedia rights holder and tries to make sure that the sponsorships are discussed, executed, and performed as well as they can. So before we go any further, welcome Brandon to the show again. Paul, great to be with you again. Uh, Excited to have Alicia join us. Uh, Certainly an exciting time of the year with uh, March Madness upon us and tournament play. Uh, Fun time to be in college sports. It is. And uh, Alicia, it was was terrific last week to answer all of our questions. We're going to come back with some more pressing questions going to make Brandon uncomfortable today. That's my whole job is to make Brandon uncomfortable in this next part of the discussion. So Alicia, uh, I know that you have been with three different athletic departments at Florida, at Virginia Tech, and now at the University of Tennessee. So I'm going to ask you right off the bat, have you ever been in an athletic department that seriously considered taking your multimedia rights in-house? No. So Florida had sold multimedia rights in-house just before I got there. Um, Mike Hill, actually, that's what he was like an expert in. Um, but by the time I got there, we, we were already with Learfield IMG. Um, and, and it was not, there was no thought of changing. Um, Rick Barricat was the GM at Virginia Tech when I was there. Um, most folks in college athletics know who Rick Barricat is, and, and there was no thought of changing it there at, at Virginia Tech. And, and truthfully, as many things as we've talked about here, um, you know, I, I know Danny ha- has done that before, and I know that Danny's been in a place, but no, we, we've not had any, any serious conversations about that here. Okay, so having said no to that question, let's go to the next kind of thought there, and I'll let Brandon uh, listen to this, because if he talks, he's going he's gonna to influence, he's going to prejudice the jury. So tell me the factors that you would be thinking about internally, if you're going to keep it outside of house, you're going to have had a multimedia rights holder win the bid, and I'm sure you've been in a situation where a contract is up or you've had other companies, other MMR companies that have come to the university you're at and said, we're interested. You said, I think you've already answered the question because you just mentioned the three GMs that you worked with. And, and you, so the relationship is obviously very, very important, but tell us about the factors outside of the obvious, which is, Hey, this is the number that that, that multimedia rights holder is bidding. What are the biggest factors that an athletic department looks at when they're looking at a bid outside of the number? Um. The capacity to, to sell, I, I think, is one of the things that how many staff are we going to have to bring in house? How many things are we going to have to do? One of the major things that a lot of people don't realize is the radio side of things and the complications of the radio side of things. You know, Glenn Thaxton here handles how many different radio stations, Brandon? 65. So we have 65 different stations across the state of Tennessee that we are you know, the balls are streaming into every football, men's basketball game, still some women's basketball games, still some baseball games, maybe not all 65 of those, but we are getting into those markets. 
Um, I, that is one of the things that a lot of ADs and a lot of administrators don't even realize how complicated it is and how many things are actually happening behind the scenes with our multimedia rights to make that happen. And then the revenue that's tied to that. Um, you know, radio sounds like one of those things that maybe that is a little outdated. Maybe it is something that we should look to modernize, but at a place like Tennessee and a place like Florida, I say this at Florida all the time, Mick Hubert never won or lost any game, but he called all the football championships. He called both basketball championships and he called the baseball championship in the minds of the Florida Gators. Mick Hubert had never done anything wrong. He was like our most iconic person that if we took Mick anywhere, our fans would be so excited to see Mick. And I think Tennessee's got the same thing from John Ward to Bob to Mickey Deerstone on the women's basketball side. The fans love him because he's been there for so long. So I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't even really think about when they think about the deal, when they think about the day-to-day -day workings of it. Um, revenue and dollars drive so much of what we're doing, right? Every, every college athletics department um, is pushing to modernize because they are trying to push more revenues. So the dollars that are tied to the contract, as you said, are, are ultimately one of the most important parts. So one of the interesting things to me when we talk about external and how they deal with the MMRs, because it's something that affects me as a company at Knox Sports, some of our clients uh, are obviously interested in the university business. Uh, and the subject of procurement is, is certainly uh, one that is, is amazing um, because it could be, it seems on the surface to be the panacea Reality is not that, that, that way. And I, I'll say it specifically, a university, every university, I don't care how wonderful everyone gets along, are actually not one entity, but silos all over the place. There is, you know, this school is making decisions on their own. This school is doing that. And the athletic department, we'd like to think that there'd be one gigantic answer for the whole school. But what it turns out to be is when you talk about from a sponsor situation with a school, you end up saying, hey, athletic department, can you do the following? Can you buy the following products? Can you change from X product to Y product if they are a sponsor? Uh, one of my good friends up in, uh, in New York, working with uh, New York uh, FC, just did a seven-figure deal for Dude Wipes. Dude Wipes. They are the entitlement uniform sponsor for the new and New York FC. I've got to think that their restrooms around that stadium have been altered in some way, but that's an extreme. But I come back to procurement is interesting because an athletic department is going to spend money in a certain way with a whole bunch of different companies. And as a sponsor, uh, we would like that company to be us. And so I'm going to let you two talk a little bit about that relationship from a procurement standpoint with different brands. And, and Brandon, I'll start with your probably some requests and I'll let Alicia maybe answer to how she answered that request and how they treat those requests. So Brandon, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always been a million dollar question. As long as I have been in this business is how do we at the collegiate level leverage a business to business relationship to help improve sponsorship? Uh, and, you know, I can speak just from my experience. I think you nailed it. I think there, there are a lot of entities on campus that become very siloed and in some cases territorial. Um, and, you know, in a lot of instances, when you're talking about purchases of, of significant dollar values and amounts, there's always the discussion of does this have to go out for an RFP or an RFQ? Um, and then how do we get the sponsor into that mix? 
that has always been extremely challenging for me. Um, I think what I've learned over the years and the best approach that I can take is we're willing to make introductions, introductions at the appropriate level um, and, and, and essentially walk someone in the door to have a conversation. Um, and that really is the extent of, of what we try to, I don't want to say promise, but what we try to, to execute and activate. Um, and, and every university is different, but, you know, in a lot of instances, even here at Tennessee, on significant purchases like that Alicia will have to work through, she may have to go through the same procurement RF, RFP, RFQ process uh, as everyone else on campus. And to some extent, that then is controlled by the procurement office. Um, and, and obviously they're very protective of their process and how they go about doing things. So it's certainly a challenging, at, it's challenging at a public institution like us. Uh, but then on the flip side, you wanna do everything that you can to position those that are doing business with you to, to have some financial upside. Uh, it's certainly a lot easier in the professional ranks where they control everything, uh, but, it, but it's a challenge here. So Alicia, you, you may have more to add from a Tennessee perspective, but then, you know, also, have you seen it different or, or was the experience different at maybe a Florida or Virginia Tech? So the experience should have been different at Florida. Um, the athletic association is its own entity. It is not affiliated per se with the university. So there were some policies that we didn't have to go through at the same way that everybody else on campus went through but it was still an area that Lee Douglas would tell you that we had not perfected. Um, you know, there were so many things that, I, I don't know that any property is doing this as well as like the pros are doing it, or as you said, maybe, you know, at a different level, but um, it, it seems like it should be simpler. It seems like it should be something that we should be able to get done. Now, when it goes through an RFP or an RFQ, as, as Brandon said, sometimes those things are out of our control, you know, lowest bid or, or whatever some of the stipulations may be in those those RFPs. Um, we just can't control those things. So yeah, it should have been easier at Florida, but Lee would tell you it was not. <laughs> well and, and Alicia Alicia and I just had a just had a similar conversation in this same vein. Uh, there is a prospect that we've been talking to uh, that provides fertilizer for field turf. And the, the client asked, hey, is there an option for us to, to get in play with athletics and potentially our product be used on your fields and turfs? Um, and so then you're bringing in another person into this. Basically, you're bringing in the expert of turf management on uh, within your athletics department. And in a lot of instances, they're using a certain blend of product because they believe that's the very best product to use for our surfaces. Um, and so what can be difficult in that conversation is you want to be respectful of who you're talking to and exactly the product that they have, but the experts in certain areas may believe what they're doing right now is the best fit for us at this time. Um, so the, the, those conversations can be tricky. Um, I will tell you, and I think this is good for young sellers, the majority of companies that you go out and talk to that can have a business to business play, I'm going to tell you 90% of those those conversations are going to start with, if you can get me in with your, with your athletics department, I guarantee you we'll spend money with you on sponsorship. Well, what I've learned over the years is 
that conversation is so difficult and that hill is so steep to climb it in a lot of instances it's not a good use of our time uh, because of the layers of communication and dialogue that have to occur to be able to pull that off um, i much prefer the conversation and this has happened in a couple different instances probably the most recent a few years ago with verizon was let's get an agreement in place and then we'll have the conversation about can we convert all the phones within the athletics department and that good faith gesture seems like it's more well-received than, than if, if, if it's done the, the reverse. I will, no question. But from a sponsor perspective, hmm, I, <laughs> that becomes a risk. So I get it. I, I, I understand both. I, it, is, it is just, it's a hard thing because on the surface, it seems like an easy thing. And it never is. It's just because universities don't move. They move at a glacial pace and then they move a little bit slower. Um, so it's hard, but all right, we're going to a similar subject, but a little bit, maybe a little bit easier because we're talking about not a university decision, but maybe a, a third party from a, a concession perspective, it, you know, concessions are so interesting because just like the, you know, the 17 year old, uh, acne strewn kid at the front of your ticket window, they are the face of your university, uh, at a lot of times. And so concessions become what people remember concessions become, what their experience is, uh, because again, you can't control in the field, but you hope you can control the back of the house. So concessions, as I go around the country, I, it just strikes me that the pro place, the pro stadiums are so far ahead of the college venues in terms of the concession experience. And, and it's, uh, and I know part of it is you guys dealt with this when we talked in our last podcast, you, you, I mean, in, in football, you're dealing with a structure uh, when, you know, General Nealon was only a private when this thing was built. And, and so it was, it's really difficult when you have a stadium that's 50, 80, 100 years old to retrofit it and make the concessions experience perfect because you, you've probably still got cavemen in the back burning logs as opposed to uh, modern heating equipment. So it's hard. But when they build new arenas, you know, it still seems like in a college atmosphere that they're trailing behind the pros. So Alicia, I want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, we have they have delivery in pro stadiums, which is very common now. They have people-less kiosks in, in all over the West Coast. How do we modernize concessions and make that experience better for our fans? And then how do we integrate sponsors when they want to do that? And I'm going to, I'm sorry, it's a two-part question, but I have a bunch of clients that are restaurant clients that would very much like, they know it's not a moneymaker, but they are very much like the opportunity to come in. And then they see these facilities and they're like, oh boy, I'm not sure I can pull that off. So I'm sorry, Alicia, take it from there. <laughs> I feel like I could spend an hour on this one. Um, I'll, I'll start with why they are the way they are, and then you can we can go back to the sponsorship um, component. But you nailed it. We have older venues, um, small concourses, and one of the things that people don't think about is power and connectivity. Um, to get kiosks, to get some of these technology pieces that you want to have that all these pro venues have. Um, we don't have tech or we don't have connectivity that runs from stand to stand to stand to be able to do that. Now, why it seems like that, you know, colleges and universities are, are building arenas or new venues and they aren't thinking about these things as much as, you know, pro venues do. Um, it's a lack of attention to detail on the fan experience on the, on the college side. Um, Part of it probably comes that on the pro team, all you're worried about is that venue at that time while you're building it. On a university campus, you got 20 sports that are the right people in the room when 
things are being cut from a project or being taken from a project or when you're talking about, you know, to have concessions run really, really well, there's a lot of things that need to go into it. Storage space, you know, hosting a game day in the swamp with 90,000 people in September, do you know how many bottles of water you go through? And do you know how many, like how much space you need to cool and ice the water? Um, there were two games that I can remember in my 11 years that we sold over 100,000 bottles of water. Um, uh, let me, let me interrupt it, right there, Alicia, just to pause. What, how incredibly, that's a great observation about two, two really cute things. Number one, that a university is focused on lots of sports at the same time and cutting things happens all the time. And secondly, power and storage are one of the things that make it cut. So I'm sorry to emphasize it, but that's amazing. That's really good feedback. Go ahead. And, and then, you know, I think you ask about the sponsorship. Um, again, it goes back to the relationship building and the communication. You know, a lot of, a lot of universities may say, no, we don't want a third party vendor in our concession stand because truthfully they get less of a cut. Well, I view it if we're getting a sponsorship deal with a restaurant who then is in our concession stand, because we're getting a third of the cut from our concessions, we're getting the sponsorship dollars. So shouldn't they offset what we're not getting on game day? And I'm not sure everybody views it that way. Um, I'm not sure everybody, again, we talked about this earlier in the last you know, time we were together of seeing the big picture of how it all fits together. You know, you have so many different departments that maybe they just see it this way or they just see it their way. It's seeing the whole fan experience together and it's also seeing all the revenue dollars flowing in together. You know, a lot of your sponsors that you have in the restaurant side are probably restaurants that our fans want to eat at. They may not just want the, you know, concessions hot dog or concessions popcorn. They might want the Calhoun's barbecue or they might want, you know, the Moe's nachos. Um, I, I think that is good for all of our brands when they're connected together like that. Yeah, Paul, we, to follow up on that, that point, we, we had a uh, scenario a few years ago where our concessionaire was buying peanuts from a peanut manufacturer that also supplied peanuts to Texas Roadhouse. Texas Roadhouse had buying power for all their restaurants, so they were actually buying the peanuts cheaper than what our concessionaire could buy it for. So we made the move to implement branded peanuts in our venue, Texas Roadhouse branded peanuts from the same manufacturer coming off the same product line. And because it was a branded product, our sales quadrupled when we went to it saying Texas Roadhouse branded product. So I think the brand, if it's the right brand, can, can enhance maybe the perceived value. And then also with some of these brands, like you mentioned, the Calhouns, uh, we can charge, there's more of a premium price that's charged for a more quality product. Um, and so the revenue can be driven up that way. Um, and, and I think you've got to take each one of those on a case-by-case -case basis. I get it. I just, from our personal perspective, one of the things that's frustrating is, you know, we're, we're dealing right now with a school, uh, one state north of you, uh, and, and we're trying to get a deal done uh, that we've already committed to a certain amount of money. Uh, and we and they called us and said, hey, we love your brand. Is there a way we can put that brand in a couple of our facilities? But in order to do that, you need to spend an incremental X for each venue. I'm thinking, this, these are two venues that right now serve, as Alicia described very well. They serve hot dogs, nachos, and, and, and hamburgers, nothing branded in the facility. If we're going to be adding to that facility, we're going to be creating a better fan experience. Don't hammer the client for something as a break-even at best. 
The, no, I mean, restaurants don't make money in, in concessions, which is one of the misnomers all around the country is, hey, if I do this concession deal, I'm going to be making money. No, you're going to be lucky to break even. That'd be a lovely thing if you can break even and you can brand and your people get to taste your product on game day uh, and they love it. They'll, be, they'll come back during the week. We, that, that's the answer. And so for a, a university to upcharge uh, beyond a sponsorship uh, incrementally too much, I think it's just a huge mistake. Brandon, I don't know how you and Alicia feel about that, but it drives me nuts. Um, I'm 100% with you. It's it's it break even at best, and then you're using it as a marketing platform. That's always been the play. Yep. Well, guys, I have had an awesome time. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us, and, and thank you for all your answers and for being just generally terrific. Thank you for our listeners for downloading, and please rate us with the maximum stars on your platform. That certainly helps us. And that is the end, folks, of season three. Brandon and I will be back in a couple months with season four. We appreciate every single one of you listeners out there. So on behalf of myself, Paul Sickman from Knox Sports, Brandon Parks from the Ball Network, we appreciate you. Look forward to talking soon from Knox Talk. See you later.